You're listening to Your Recovered Life series, True Stories from the Future, with your host, Courtney Webster. Hi, I'm Courtney Webster, and this is Your Recovered Life. And today, I'm so happy to be talking to Ellie Shaneberger, and you're going to see why. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She is the president and founder of Shining Strong, a nonprofit dedicated to helping people struggling with addiction and celebrating recovery. She's the writer of the popular blog, One Crafty Mother, which she'll tell you about. She's the founder of Crying Out Now, a blog where women tell their stories of addiction and recovery and offer each other amazing support. She is also co-founder and co-host of The Bubble Hour, an online talk radio show where real people tell real stories of alcoholism and recovery. She's a jewelry artist and designer who runs a successful jewelry shop, Shining Stones, via a website and in-home store, Two Little Birds. It's Two Little Birds, right? Yep. Okay. Okay. Um, Ellie's honest and open writing about alcoholism and recovery led to an appearance on the Oprah Winfrey Show and interviews in USA Today and Red Book Magazine. Ellie is out and proud. (laughs) Um, In November of 2011, Ellie was diagnosed with stage 4 tonsil cancer, and after chemotherapy, radiation treatments, and surgery, she was declared to be in full remission in April 2012. You can read about her entire cancer journey. It's online, too. And she lives outside of Boston with her top priorities her children, Greta and Finn, and her amazing husband, Steve. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks. Okay, so you know what we're talking about. We're talking about people finding their calling, their recovery, that thing that lights them up in recovery. Mm -hmm. And um, I am really curious to hear. I've heard your story before, so I'm just going to ask you lots of questions. What happened? You got sober. Well, first of all, did you have a calling before you got into recovery? Um, no, I would say not really. Um, I remember sort of, I met my husband when I was in my early twenties and sort of in my late twenties and early thirties, he's a guy that we were dating and he's really interested in a lot of things and has a lot of passions and hobbies and things. And he would always scratch his head and look at me and say, what, what are you passionate about? What is something that really lights your fire? And I remember thinking I'm supposed to have an answer for that, but I didn't, I didn't, I had some hobbies and things I'd had as a child, but nothing that I really felt like a calling or something that I was pulled to do. So before I got sober, um, it was work and drinking, <laughs> a lot of drinking. And you yeah. were, you were really good at both until you I worked, was. right? I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because you did, you had some fierce success in business, I would say. I yeah, I did. I did. Okay. But it didn't feel like you're calling. I think that's so, I, I love hearing that people weren't clear on it before they got sober because I, I felt, I felt the same way. So I'm like, same. Okay. So then what happened? So you got sober and what happened? Yeah, I got sober in uh, 2007 and it was in the late summer, early fall. And about four, five or six months after I got sober, I would say, I felt um, so I, I sort of had my feet under me at that point, and I was getting the hang of this recovery thing, and I felt very committed to it, finally. And But I felt that sort of hole in the middle of me, like I really needed something that would be um, a creative outlet or something that would give me passion and purpose. And at this point, I had two children. My children were five and two, so both home most of the time, which is challenging. Um, yeah. To, in, in terms of finding yourself, because a lot of it was a lot of my time was dedicated to them, obviously. Um, so I decided I need a hobby. I was thinking back to my husband's words before and thinking, you know, I, there's got to be something I can do. And 
I would literally go to the hobbyist stores that are local to me, like AC Moore and Michaels, and I would, like a mad woman, I'd stick my son in the little front cart, the cart, my daughter would hobble along beside, up and down the aisles, looking for something that would be a hobby. And um, I was very purposeful about it. I mean, I really was sort of like, is it going to be this? Is it going to be this? And I tried, um, I think I tried painting or, you know, sort of sketching, like pencil sketching first, and I... You know, like any good alcoholic, I went completely over the top and I bought all of the supplies and I loved the supply buying and organizing process. And I came home and I realized pretty quickly that you just, that's something that's either in you or not in you. And so I was trying to sketch and it wasn't perfect and I couldn't, you know, lots of crumpled paper to um, evidence the failure of that endeavor. So I went back to the stores and I tried needle pointing. I still have um, frames somewhere, not on my wall, but a really sort of lumpy, crooked, you know, uh, lighthouse needlepoint uh-huh. thing that sort of reminds me. I, I know one part of the lighthouse that sort of cinches in on one side, and I it, it took every ounce of, of willpower I had to finish that. But it felt more like a chore. Like here's me doing a hobby and having a passion. Like it didn't feel like something that was coming from the inside of me. So back to the store we went, and um, was just about ready to give up and check out. And I looked down and I saw a little beading kit, a full beading kit with little stones and crystals and everything that you need to make a bracelet or a necklace. And I felt that thing. I went, oh, oh, I bet that's something I can do. And I also remembered as a child that I loved rock collecting. I had a rock polisher and I, um, I've always lived near the beach and collect stones and was really into the meanings behind the different stones. And so it was more than just, oh, here's something that can occupy my time. I felt that little tiny tug of, I like these things. Um, so I brought the beading kit home and I spread it all out and I got all organized and just played with it. I was way too impatient to actually take a jewelry class. Why would you do that? You know, I went out and Googled online, how do you make a bracelet and, um, looking for the fastest possible way to become, you know, a jewelry maker. And, um, I knew pretty quickly that this was the right hobby for me because when you're making a bracelet or a beaded thing, if you get halfway through it and you don't like it, you take the beads off and you start again. So it didn't have that feeling of permanence. When you put a paintbrush on paper, you feel like you, you can't go back. You're committed. You've got to keep going forward. And so within, I would say, two or three weeks, I was hitting those stores every day and buying more beads and researching the meanings behind them even more and buying little Tupperware containers to store them all in. And I, I would be up until 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning totally content making jewelry. And I realized that the crazy voices in my head stopped when I was doing that. I was completely absorbed in the process of doing this, very calming, very therapeutic, um, and creative. Like the creative, the creative self inside of me was waking up. Wow. And so, and then my shoulders just dropped when you said your first, I was like, oh, is she tweaking up there? But then you're like, no, I just felt so good. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. So then what happened? Like, because I, I love uh, what I what I particularly love about your story is how the threads like the, the the threads just weave together and they just form this amazing thing. But it started with this, so I, I love that you. The first thing you felt was that like pull, and, absolutely. And yeah. then and then what happened? Well, I decided that making jewelry in the privacy of my own home wasn't enough because I was really starting to experience a lot of the gifts of recovery and feeling like I was getting me back and feeling passionate about something for the first time ever, pretty much. Um, and a friend of mine or my brother told me about Etsy.com, which is an online venue where you can really easily set up a shop, sell your jewelry on the World Wide Web. 
So I decided that I would set up a little store on Etsy, but I didn't want to just sell jewelry. I sort of thought, you know, I want to sell recovery jewelry. I can really weave in a lot of the things that I'm learning about myself and about recovery into making pieces that have, you know, little charms that say hope or serenity or gratitude. I also figured out which stones and crystals are reflective of themes of recovery, like amethyst is the sobriety stone. Who knew, who knew they had a sobriety stone? So I made a shop description that talked about the fact that I was a woman in recovery from alcoholism. And it was a really important part of my own evolution in owning my disease, but furthermore, even celebrating recovery and starting to become almost proud of the things that I was able to achieve. So I set up this little shop and I had little business cards made with the um, URL on how to get to the shop. And it had been open for about two or three weeks and I wasn't telling anybody about it. It's sort of, you know, I got that far and then I got scared. And I went to a play group with a bunch of local moms and I was wearing one of the necklaces that I made and they all commented on it. They said, oh, I love that necklace and where did you get it? And I remember when I started, I would put a, sort of a question mark at the end of everything like, I made it, you know, in my store. I had a hard time really self-identifying as an artist or a jeweler, but I handed out my business cards and they were, and I was so excited. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to make some sales and this is going to be great. And I was about halfway home driving home and I went, oh, they're going to know. When they go to my store, it says right up at the top, you know, about the artist. She's a woman in recovery from alcoholism. And, of course, I had a moment of sheer terror, what I call like a vulnerability hangover, where I thought, oh, what did I just do? And I kind of thought, well, it's out of my hands now. Let's just sort of see where this goes. And it was a really beautiful thing that unfolded because I, of course, thought all of them were gossiping and the whole town was talking about me and being in recovery. And did you know she was an alcoholic? And... I didn't get that. What I got was people who sort of said, good for you and tell me more about that. Or I have a mother or a brother or a sister or a friend who struggles. And immediately I got that sense of community and it was completely unintentional. I mean, I stumbled into it and it also allowed me to sort of be able to talk more openly about my recovery in a way that was under my control. You know, it didn't feel gossipy. It felt very positive and focused and compassionate and, so the, the um, so evolution of my shop and the evolution of my recovery kind of, or the jewelry making, not really the shop, but the jewelry making and my recovery went hand in hand mm -hmm. where I was getting braver as an artist and coming out there and saying, you know, do you want to buy something I made? When somebody says no, they don't want to buy something you made, it feels like they're saying no to you I don't like personally. You. I don't like you and everything you stand for. Um, and it helped me stay safe in a lot of ways. The more that people learned in town that I was in recovery, I could go places and feel safe and understood. I could go to parties or to get togethers and people didn't ask me why I wasn't drinking. But more than that, they were asking me about my jewelry, about my creative process. And um, so it, I began to sort of feel a sense of pride, not ego, but pride about the fact that recovery has given me this gift and I want to be able to share this gift with the world. And it really helped me step out from behind the shame and the mm -hmm. secrecy of mm -hmm. feeling like a, I'm an alcoholic and nobody can ever know. Right. How cool. What a neat byproduct, just kind of like an evolution yeah. rather than having yeah. to like, all right, I'm coming out. It's just kind of, it yeah. happened for you. Yeah. It was yeah. a real, and if I had set out to do that, it wouldn't have happened that way. Right. It just, it was sort of, it had, it had a momentum that was bigger than me right from the very beginning. Cool. So yeah. then you started your blog, right? Just to write yes. about jewelry making? Yes, somebody said, if you're going to be selling jewelry, especially online, you need to have a blog where you talk about jewelry. And I thought, nobody wants to read a blog about jewelry, so I'm going to do a blog about creativity. And so, again, why would I talk to other bloggers or take a class? I just Googled 
how do you start a blog? And found Blogger as a platform, and I just, bleh, you know, I sort of just started writing. And in my first post, I think I did write about creativity. And it didn't, I didn't have that tuck. It didn't feel authentic to me. It sort of felt that something was off, something was missing. So I began to write about what I just described, how those two worlds were intersecting between creativity and passion and giving back and recovery, thinking that nobody was ever going to read this. This was just this little, and it was extremely therapeutic for me to be writing about it. Um, and it took off pretty quickly. What I learned is that people are really hungry for that, um, not, not only that authenticity and that vulnerability in writing, but also learning about alcoholism and addiction and recovery because at least back you know you hear about it more now but back in 2008-2009 there weren't a lot of people that were talking about it publicly um, so my readership kind of it took off pretty quickly and the emails started coming in I need help or my friend needs help or can I buy my friend this bracelet with her sober anniversary on it or and it um, again I had that vulnerability hangover feeling of Oh, okay. You know, I didn't, I wasn't looking to be a, um, you know, sort of out in front of the pack talking about this, uh-huh. but so many incredible people came into my life as a result of it. And I got so much encouragement from people saying that this is, you know, I love your writing and I love your jewelry. And it helped me sort of begin to see, am I a writer? Am I an artist? Like, is this, is this the thing that's the thing that I've been looking for? not knowing I've been looking for it for all these years. So um, the blog started as over here as something to, as a means, you know, a, a marketing tool is what I thought it was going to be. And after the second post, it turned into a blog about addiction and recovery and motherhood and humor and life and balance. But the, the underpinnings of it really were talking about recovery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then what happened? <laughs> well, um, Fast forward to 2009, actually, and um, that's when I was contacted by USA Today, who said it's extremely hard to find people who will talk about addiction recovery publicly, so can we talk to you about this? We're doing an article about mothers who struggle with drinking, and then about three or four months after that, which I did with some friends of mine, and um, it was a good introductory experience to um, speaking in a public forum, you know, that I really don't control where the where this goes. It's not like choosing who I hand a business card to. This was USA Today. It was national. And how um, I was very happy with how the article came out, but I learned that it was my first taste of people criticizing me a little bit about, you know, when you speak about recovery, you're supposed to speak about it this way, or do you have an ego problem, or who do you think you are? And it was, there was a little tiny bit of feedback like that. But as any good alcoholic, of course, I focused on the negative stuff and not the legions of people who were were supportive of it. Um, but I learned that the, these, as these things came my way, it was I was learning about my own personal growth, and that these were obstacles that I had to push through. That there, you know, USA to call USA Today calls, and I say, sure, why not? And then a little under a year later, the Oprah Winfrey Show called. They had read a blog post that I did um, talking about sort of the collective denial about mothers who drink, that that's still a stigma that the world really struggles with. And uh, I ended up on the Oprah Winfrey show with my husband. And that was an interesting phone call to make to my parents to say, do you mind if I tell 7 million people that I'm an alcoholic? And um, that brought a lot of attention my way. It brought a lot of attention to the blog. And it was... um, Terrifying. I won't lie. It was very, very scary. 
but it was scary in that really exhilarating kind of way. Like, I think really important things are happening to me personally, not just to what people are doing as a result of reading my story or hearing my story. Um, and there were, there were critics and there were some tough conversations that I had with some people that I knew in my recovery community who thought that I shouldn't be stepping out and talking about this in such a public way. Um, so I really had to dig deep. I had to, I think of myself as a recovering people pleaser too. So I had to get comfortable with the idea that not everyone's gonna like what I'm doing. Um, and that brought tens of thousands of more readers to my blog. And um, stop me if you have any specific questions. No, but no, I, no, this what, is great. What ended up happening was I was a little tired of telling my story. I sort of thought it's great for me to be out there telling my story. Um, but I feel like how much of that can I really, you know, it really is all about me. And I was starting to get kind of uncomfortable with that. And I thought, I wonder what would happen if we started a site where women could submit their stories of addiction and recovery. I wonder if anyone would do it. If it's helping me and it's therapeutic to me and people are hungry for this kind of information and knowing that people are far braver from behind their computer screens than they are in real life. So again, without any forth thought whatsoever, 10 o'clock at night, I started a new blog called Crying Out Now, and I sort of put it out there on my social media outlets that I was starting this forum, and that if you wanted to submit your story, you could do it anonymously, but that I felt that there was a need that people were really hungry to understand about how other people struggle and to know that they weren't alone. And just like with One Crafty Mother and just like with my jewelry, it really wasn't me. It was the response that came. It just, it was like a tidal wave. It completely overwhelmed me, but not in the bad way, in that, wow, you know, we really are putting our finger on the pulse of something big here. And um, that became extremely popular. And when I say words like popular or successful, I mean in sense of like building a community, a strong interwoven community of support. Um, and it took the laser beam off my forehead, which I really, I needed because like any passion that you have with writing or artistry or creativity, if it starts to feel like a job, you know, it loses a little bit of its, of the thing that sustains you as a person. And Crying Out Now um, grew and grew and grew. And about a year ago, I thought to myself, well, the written forum is great for storytelling. What about, what about podcasts? I wonder what that would be like. And I found a great platform online to be able to do um, an internet radio show, talk show, and that fed these shows directly to podcasts. And um, also realized at this point in time that this was this had gotten bigger than I was that I could handle on my own. So I founded the nonprofit Shining Strong, and I talked to some trusted friends also in recovery to help me run these things so that it wasn't just the mad woman behind the curtain running all of these things individually. And that has also brought a lot of community to find people that really want to be involved and really want to help. And so Shining Strong has been around since earlier this year, since April of this year. And it's named after my dad, who I lost suddenly in 2011. Um, my maiden name is Strong. And so I, and he's somebody who gave back a lot in his life. Um, so Shining Strong has been growing and building a community as well. And it really sort of blows my mind how what started with glancing down at a beating kit in Michael's turned into, like, without any real intention on my part, my intention was only to keep sharing vulnerably and authentically and finding community. And as that continued to grow and be a positive healing thing for me, I thought as long as it's healing, I'll keep doing it. 
has turned into Shining Strong with the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and my own blog and writing um, for other publications like Red Book and talking publicly about recovery and getting involved in other nonprofit organizations. You know, talk about filling a hole that you felt was inside of you. It, it's my life is richer and fuller than I than if I had designed it, I would have sold myself short. Absolutely. Yeah. I just love it. I love, I love when we first talked about it, how you <clears throat> talked about just <laughs> trolling the aisles, looking for a hobby. <laughs> yeah. And, um, cause you know, I always wanted to be the person, I think I've told you before, like I wanted to be the person who was like, you know, the marathoner or the yogi or <laughs> the roller derby or just like mountain class, something that I just was so like passionate. You couldn't stop me from doing it. I was just like, no, I don't really. <laughs> well, I think that's funny too. Cause some people would say, maybe I should take up running. You and I would say, maybe I should be a marathoner. Other people would say, you know, maybe I should do yoga. And you and I would say, maybe I should be a yogi. You know, <laughs> that zero and 10, you know, what five? Who does five? I'll go for 10. Thank you very much. And then if I don't want to do the 10, mm, now I'm not going to do that. Yeah, if I can't, nine and a half, that's not good enough. This one goes to 11, right? right exactly. <laughs> That's so cool. So I love how it wove together. I wonder if there were times along the way. So, you know, what I really hope from this, by, you know, by sharing these stories, is um, for people to, who, are, who are questioning, like, mm-hmm. what's, what's my thing? Yeah. I don't, uh, I don't have a hobby, or I don't have a passion, or I maybe do, but I'm not quite sure. I want them to hear from, you know, you and people like you who feel like they really have found a thing that lights them up in recovery and how they found it and how they followed it along. And you've just so beautifully explained how one thing led to the other. And um, it sounds like it happened really gently. I wonder if there were any parts along the way that were like, I don't know, that that need to be shared too. Yeah, I think um, as you were framing that question and talking about other people who might be listening and thinking, oh yeah, but I don't, uh, well, I don't know what I would do. There's the, it's sort of a, a platitude, you know, the the uh, the notion of do something that scares you. But I think that's actually true, except that I would put the qualifier do something that scares you a little. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that it's um, the times where I did something that scared me a little too much, and I thought if I'm really scared and I'm being really vulnerable, really good things are going to come, and it was too much. And um, I'm trying to think of a good example of that, but I think probably the best example is when before I had started crying out now and the other sites to take the focus off me, I started to try to create vulnerability. It was coming from a place that wasn't authentic or organic. It's like, what can I say now that's really going to, you know, and I, um, so I started sharing pieces of my story. Not that I'm regretful of having done it, but it isn't necessarily something that I thought I wanted to do. I felt like I should do it. So anytime the shoulds kind of came into play for me, um, I felt like I was pushing it, sort of forcing it a little bit instead of taking a deep breath, stepping back, reevaluating and thinking, you know, sort of pulling it back to what's in my heart. You know, what's, what's, why am I doing all this? Is it because I want more people to look at me? Is it because I've gotten used to the attention and I just want to build a bigger audience? Or what was the point of all of this at the very beginning? And it was community and outreach and personal growth. And so um, I was about two years sober when I went on Oprah and I talked to all of my trusted recovery friends and to a person, they all said, I think you're crazy, but I've got your back. 
you know, I'll help you through this, but I, do you think maybe this is a little bit much? And my, one of my very good trusted friends said, I can sense that you're going to do this, you know, that I'm not going to be able to convince you not to do this. And so let's just make sure that we're, you know, know that I'm right here. She sort of ran alongside me through all of this. And after I filmed Oprah and before the show came out, I was a mess. I was a mess because I had sort of handed over my story entrusted it to producers that I didn't know, didn't know how it was all going to play out. All I knew was that it was too late to stop it. And thankfully, it all turned out fine. I was very happy with the show, and it, it eventually ended up bringing a lot of good things into my life. But that was probably an example of not a baby step. You know, that scared me a lot instead of a little. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think now if a similar opportunity that was so much bigger in scale than what I'm accustomed to came along, I would be a lot more cautious and a lot more purposeful, trying to think about why am I doing this? What does this really feed it? I have a friend who calls it the line. You know, if you find yourself on a line and it's healing and it's fulfilling, stay on the line. Don't get distracted over here by this flashy thing or by all of these people who want you to do this. If should or have to is coming into the equation too much, you're getting away from your heart song. I mean, your heart song is your line. The thing that when you open your eyes in the morning, you think, I can't wait to do that. And um, I would open my eyes in the morning and think, I can't wait to write, or I can't wait to make jewelry. But I didn't think, I can't wait to um, get more people to pay attention to me, or <laughs> find more readers, or advertise, or fundraise. Like, those things didn't appeal to me. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I fell victim to people saying, you really need to advertise on your blog and make more money, I was like, okay. And off I went, trying to do that. And it wasn't authentic. It wasn't part of my line, my heart song. So you got to and feel it. Yeah, I really sort of felt like, no, I've lost the thread here. I need to take a step back and not be afraid to lose what I've built. Um, that was a, another big part of my journey of, of um, would I rather be somebody who doesn't try or who has the courage to try and fail? And I had never been somebody who had the courage to try and fail. And part of that was getting sober. You know, you stumble a lot when you try to get sober and you stumble a lot in recovery. And also my children getting older like what sort of example do I want to be setting to them about how I handle failure and um, I've had a lot of ideas that were in my mind they were awesome and they were going to set the world on fire and this was going to be the thing and it so wasn't the thing because it it really it was something that I was forcing um, but you tried it but I tried it and then when it didn't work I sulked and cried and stamped my feet like a little girl for two weeks and said, that's it, I'm closing everything down and I'm, you know, or I get a particularly nasty email or somebody I cared about was critical of what I was doing. I went through a long period of time where it was all or nothing. You know, if I'm getting criticized or if something's not working, I'm going to take my ball and go home. I'm done. You know, pull down all the blogs, pull down everything because it's not going my way. I had to sit in some pretty uncomfortable spaces for a while and say, I don't need to do anything. If I'm not sure about where this is going, I can just do nothing for a while. And it, yeah, a little bit like five instead of zero or 10, maybe even two, um, and be okay with being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And if, and sometimes I would take, I would step away for an entire, you know, a huge length of time this summer on, on the early part of July, it did get to be too much. And I was totally happily completely overwhelmed and not the good way. 
And but I looked at each individual thing that I was doing, and I thought I love all of these things, and they're all so important, and they're all a huge part of what makes me me. So they can't be bad individually, right? And I, my birthday is July fourth, and after the day after my birthday, I pretty much had a nervous breakdown. And a friend of mine said, "Why don't you just turn everything off for a month?" And it scared me. I didn't want to do that because what if everybody disappeared and nobody was there? And and um, what I did something that scared me a little. You know, I stepped back, and by the time I now I'm sort of re-entering back in in the fall into everything that I do, and I'm picking and choosing and trying to be a little bit more balanced in what it is that you know is it how close to the line is it? If it's not very close to the line, it's gone. I'm not doing it anymore. No, I love that. I've never heard of the line. I've heard of the beam. You know, being on the beam. Mm -hmm. But the mm -hmm. line, it just it what I what I see when you say that is almost like you know how there's like or like. Um, like gold or whatever those things, what you know, precious things in the earth. Yeah. There's like yeah, a thread seam. of them, a, a seam. seam. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so when you say a line, I'm like, oh, follow the, follow the gold. You know, stay with the gold. Yeah. That. So yeah. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, what would you say? Um, so I, I forgot to ask you at the very beginning. I, I usually like to start and say, what is? Have you found your calling? <laughs> I have such a love hate relationship <laughs> with that question. Yes. Tell kind me of about. Like, I've heard I heard an actress one time who got a uh, lifetime achievement award when she was like 35, and she's all bummed out. She's like, "Thanks, but really now, you know, I don't think I'm done." Um, so yes, I think I have found my calling, but articulating what that is is very is a very non-specific thing. You know, I think that um, it it, evol it evolves all the time. That the jewelry was a calling. It called to me. I really wanted, that was something that really fueled me. I almost couldn't not do it. Um, and the building a nonprofit and the outreach and the community and the, I am, my passion now is breaking down the stigma that surrounds alcoholism and furthermore celebrating recovery, helping the world to understand that we do recover. And there's so many of us out there. Um, so it, you know, it started with jewelry and it's built into something bigger, but I'm so not done. I mean, a year from now, my calling could be, it could lead me somewhere else. And so um, the line that I have, the scene, the thing that I follow really has to do with the nonprofit work and how much does this help, help me as an individual grow and help other individuals. And if I can't keep the jewelry up and I have to do something else as the underpinnings for that, then that's fine. I'll stay open to it. But if somebody said to me, held a gun to my head and said, Ellie, you can no longer do that. You can no longer be out there telling your story and encouraging other people to tell their story and um, helping bring addiction out of the dark and into the light. You can't do that anymore. You have to find something else. I would be crushed. I, you know, That would be very hard to get out of bed in the morning. So in the sense of, have I found my calling? Yeah, yeah, that's it. But did I set out to do that? No, you know, you know it's, um, circling back to your question, so if somebody's thinking, well, you know, I like to knit, or I like to run, or, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be by nature, I don't think, anything huge. You know, it really should be something that is fully absorbable into your current life, and maybe something that scares you a little. Like, I like to run, but I'm not a very good runner, or I can't run very far, or I'm a little overweight, or I'll look silly doing it. Those are really awesome reasons to try running. You know, but, and who knows, 10 years from now, maybe you'll be, you know, staging a, 
10K to help raise money for something that you care about, or you'll be a personal trainer. I mean, who knows where that's going, but who cares? Oh, yeah. You know, the, sort of yeah. Start small, you know, don't be afraid to start small, I guess, is kind of the message. To that. That's great. Because I was going to ask you, like, what if you had some advice for people, what would it be? And there was just, for some reason, the way you said it, when you said, my calling, it it just all of a sudden it really became clear. It's like, what is calling you? What do you hear? What is calling you towards it? Yeah. Because I think there is this, you know, when you're like, I hate that, that calling, right? It is. It's it's a lot of pressure. But mm-hmm. if you but if you break it down into really a much more, you know, an, an easier bite is what's calling you? Mm-hmm. What's yeah. what's capturing your attention? What makes you feel like oh, I kind of like to do that and yeah. do it? And that's what I love about your stories because. You know, when you were when you were buying that little rock set of of, of uh, you know jewelry making, you weren't thinking, and then I'm buying this, and then I'm going to go found a nonprofit, and then I'm going on <laughs> Oprah, and then I'm going to have exactly. a, like ever, ever, yeah. ever, 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 ever. No. And no. it might have been too it it might have been too scary if that had been like yeah on your receipt at Michael's, right? Oh, by yeah. the way. Well, and it ties back into that fear of failure thing, or that fear of being imperfect, because. Even now, as great, when I call what I call successes, I don't mean monetary, and I don't mean you know um, billboard kind of successes. I just sort of mean satisfying experiences, all of the gratifying experiences that happen to me. I really only look about six feet in front of me. I mean, I and I do that on purpose, and some and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I start to think really big, and then my life, the frame of reference in my life and in my passion becomes I'm not at that really big place yet. And I start to get dispirited and I start to get, you know, oh, what's the point of writing if I only have, you know, 200 readers and she's got a thousand. So I want a thousand readers. And until I have a thousand, I'm just, you know, I'm worthless. So I go from 200 readers to 201 and then I go, yay. And then I 202 and then I go, yay. And I am purposefully almost fooling my myself because I, I know myself well enough to know that if, if I feel like I'm not measuring up, to some lofty goal, I'll quit. You know, I'll take my ball and go home. But if I'm just grateful for wherever it goes, you know, sort of do your best and let go of the outcome, that kind of thing. Um, I'm ha- I'm fulfilled. I'm happy. I'm grateful. More importantly, I'm grateful. So that in business ventures or in even starting the nonprofit, you know, we have to. We had to sit down and we had to do a mission statement. And I just about lost my tiny mind because I don't do mission statements. I do. What are we going to do this month? What are we going to do this week? You know, how can we? And so I brought really big creative thinkers on board to help me that love to do mission statements and love to talk about finances and love to do those things because I, A, I'm terrible at them and B, they are dispiriting to me Um, because I like to hover around at 40,000 feet somewhere and come up with crazy ideas. That's kind of what I like to do, but without saying it's only a success if Mm -hmm. that doesn't work. For me. Yeah, that's great. No, I hear celebrating along the way is really important. Is there anything that I that I haven't asked you about or um, mm-hmm. that you'd want to let people know about? You, I think you've asked me about it all, but if I honestly, if I had to roll it all up into sort of what I think the underlying message is from my story, is seriously, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. And Think about the things that make you feel vulnerable. Does, you know, being imperfect make you feel vulnerable? Does does feeling like you're different 
you know, that you really, are you somebody who likes to blend in the crowd and not really be noticed? Don't be afraid to step outside of the comfort zone a little bit and the things that you're most resistant to, lean into them, you know, embrace them, chase after them a little bit. You could, and you can always change your mind. You know, I would forget this along the way. Like now I'm, you know, if this doesn't work, it's all over. You know, that's the beauty of life. We can get up the next day or the next hour and just say, oh, that didn't work. Let's go this way. And um, so much of our society, they send messages of perfection and closed off and even, you know, Facebook. It's so easy to compare your insides to somebody else's highlight reel. And, you know, I'm, I'm more of you know, just two days ago or yesterday even, I sent a, I took a picture of myself at the hair salon, you know, with the things in my hair. <laughs> And it was tied up here, and I sort of was like, I looked like Miley Cyrus, but a middle-aged Miley Cyrus. So I put it up on my Facebook page, and immediately my cell phone rang, and three or four of my friends said, are you crazy? Oh, really? Are you crazy? And I said, no, I'm me. You know, yeah, it's a little crazy, but it's also, um, I don't know, people, it brings people into my life that get it, that get my sense of humor, and I don't have to change who I am to please them. It automatically brings the people that enrich me into my life. So the vulnerability is really a key. It's it's something that I, Brene Brown talks about it a lot and I pay a lot of attention to her teachings because every time I dare to be a little bit vulnerable, really, really good things come my way. Cool. So I'm afraid isn't a good enough reason. It's just not. <laughs> That's why you're my friend. I can call you and go, Ellie, and go, do it. <laughs> do it anyway. You can change your mind. Right? Awesome. Thank you so, so much. You. you are doing amazing things in the world. And it's just. As are you. you. Thank you. But it's such an inspiration. And I know that people are really going to get some really cool stuff from everything you shared. So thank you. And thank you for doing everything you do. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Okay. It's an honor. Bye. Bye. To get in touch with Ellie, go to her website, shiningstrong.org. To get in touch with me, check out my website at yourrecoveredlife.com. And if you have a true story to share, I'd love to hear from you. Send a note to Courtney at yourrecoveredlife.com. And thanks for listening.